0: CHAPTER 52 OF A HAZARD OF NEW FORTUNES. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Their affliction brought the Dryfooses into humaner relations with the Marches, who had hitherto regarded them as a necessary evil, as the odious means of their own prosperity. Mrs. March found that the women of the family seemed glad of her coming, and in the sense of her usefulness to them all, she began to feel a kindness even for Christine but she could not help seeing that between the girl and her father there was an unsettled account somehow, and that it was Christine and not the old man who was holding out. She thought that their sorrow had tended to refine the others. Mela was much more subdued, and, except when she abandoned herself to a childish interest in her mourning, she did nothing to shock Mrs. March's taste, or to seem unworthy of her grief. She was very good to her mother, whom the blow had left unchanged and to her father whom it had apparently fallen upon with crushing weight once after visiting their house mrs march described to march a little scene between dryfoos and mela when he came home from wall street and the girl met him at the door with a kind of country simpleness and took his hat and stick and brought him into the room where mrs march sat looking tired and broken she found this look of Dryfoos's pathetic, and dwelt on the sort of stupefaction there was in it. He must have loved his son more than they ever realized. Yes, said March, I suspect he did. He's never about the place since that day. He was always dropping in before, on his way uptown. He seems to go down to Wall Street every day, just as before, but I suppose that's mechanical. He wouldn't know what else to do. I dare say it's best for him. The sanguine Fulkerson is getting a little anxious about the future of every other week. Now Conrad's gone, he isn't sure the old man will want to keep on with it, or whether he'll have to look up another angel. He wants to get married, I imagine, and he can't venture till this point is settled. "'It's a very material point to us, too, Basil,' said Mrs. March. "'Well, of course. I hadn't overlooked that, you may be sure.' one of the things that fulkerson and i have discussed is a scheme for buying the magazine its success is pretty well assured now and i shouldn't be afraid to put money into it if i had the money i couldn't let you sell the house in boston basil and i don't want to i wish we could go back and live in it and get the rent too it would be quite a support but i suppose if dryfoos won't keep on it must come to another angel I hope it won't be a literary one, with a fancy for running my department.' "'Oh, I guess whoever takes the magazine will be glad enough to keep you.' "'Do you think so? Well, perhaps, but I don't believe Fulkerson would let me stand long between him and an angel of the right description.' "'Well, then, I believe he would. And you've never seen anything, Basil, to make you really think that Mr. Fulkerson didn't appreciate you to the utmost.' i think i came pretty near an under-evaluation in that lindau trouble i shall always wonder what put a backbone into fulkerson just at that crisis fulkerson doesn't strike me as the stuff of a moral hero at any rate he was one said mrs march and that's quite enough for me march did not answer what a noble thing life is anyway here i am well on the way to fifty after twenty-five years of hard work looking forward to the potential poorhouse as confidently as I did in youth. We might have saved a little more than we have saved, but the little more wouldn't avail if I were turned out of my place now, and we should have lived sordidly to no purpose. Someone always has you by the throat unless you have someone else in your grip. I wonder if that's the attitude the Almighty intended his respectable creatures to take toward one another.' I wonder if he meant our civilization, the battle we fight in, the game we trick in. I wonder if he considers it final, and if the kingdom of heaven on earth which we pray for—' "'Have you seen Lindau today, Mrs. March asked. You inferred it from the quality of my piety?' March laughed, and then suddenly sobered. "'Yes, I saw him. It's going rather hard with him, I'm afraid. The amputation doesn't heal very well. The shock was very great, and he's old. It'll take time. There's so much pain that they have to keep him under opiates, and I don't think he fully knew me. At any rate, I didn't get my piety from him to-day. It's horrible, horrible, said Mrs. March. I can't get over it. After losing his hand in the war, to lose his whole arm now in this way, it does seem too cruel. Of course he oughtn't to have been there, we can say that. But you oughtn't to have been there either, Basil. Well, I wasn't exactly advising the police to go and club the railroad presidents. Neither was poor Conrad Dryfoos. I don't deny it. All that was distinctly the chance of life and death. That belonged to God, and no doubt it was law, though it seems chance. But what I object to is this economic chance world in which we live, and which we men seem to have created. It ought to be law as inflexible in human affairs as the order of day and night in the physical world, that if a man will work he shall both rest and eat, and shall not be harassed with any question as to how his repose and his provision shall come. Nothing less ideal than this satisfies the reason. But in our state of things no one is secure of this. No one is sure of finding work, no one is sure of not losing it. I may have my work taken away from me at any moment by the caprice, the mood, the indigestion of a man who has not the qualification for knowing whether I do it well or ill. At my time of life, at every time of life, a man ought to feel that if he will keep on doing his duty he shall not suffer in himself or in those who are dear to him except through natural causes. But no man can feel this as things are now and so we go on pushing and pulling climbing and crawling thrusting aside and trampling underfoot lying cheating stealing and then we get to the end covered with blood and dirt and sin and shame and look back over the way we've come to a palace of our own or the poorhouse which is about the only possession we can claim in common with our brother men i don't think the retrospect can be pleasing i know i know said his wife "'I think of those things, too, Basil. Life isn't what it seems when you look forward to it. But I think people would suffer less, and wouldn't have to work so hard, and could make all reasonable provision for the future if they were not so greedy and foolish.' "'Oh, without doubt. We can't put it all on the conditions. We must put some of the blame on character.' "'But conditions make character.' and people are greedy and foolish and wish to have and to shine because having and shining are held up to them by civilization as the chief good of life we all know they are not the chief good perhaps not good at all but if someone ventures to say so all the rest of us call him a fraud and a crank and go moiling and toiling on to the palace or the poorhouse we can't help it if one were less greedy or less foolish "'someone else would have and would shine at his expense. "'We don't moil and toil to ourselves alone. "'The palace of the poorhouse is not merely for ourselves, "'but for our children, whom we've brought up in the superstition "'that having and shining is the chief good. "'We dare not teach them otherwise, for fear they may falter in the fight "'when it comes their turn, and the children of others "'will crowd them out of the palace into the poorhouse.' if we felt sure that honest work shared by all would bring them honest food shared by all some heroic few of us who did not wish our children to rise above their fellows though we could not bear to have them fall below might trust them with the truth but we have no such assurance and so we go on trembling before dryfooses and living in gym crackeries basil basil i was always willing to live more simply than you you know i was i know you always said so my dear but how many bell ratchets and speaking tubes would you be willing to have at the street door below i remember that when we were looking for a flat you rejected every building that had a bell ratchet or a speaking tube and would have nothing to do with any that had more than an electric button you wanted a hall boy with electric buttons all over him I don't blame you. I find such things quite as necessary as you do.' "'And do you mean to say, Basil,' she asked, abandoning this unprofitable branch of the inquiry, that you are really uneasy about your place? That you are afraid Mr. Dryfoos may give up being an angel, and Mr. Fulkerson may play you false?' "'Play me false? Oh, it wouldn't be playing me false. It would be merely looking out for himself.' If the New Angel had editorial tastes and wanted my place, it's what any one would do. You wouldn't do it, Basil. Wouldn't I? Well, if any one offered me more salary than every other week pays, say, twice as much, what do you think my duty to my suffering family would be? It's give and take in the business world, Isabel, especially take. But as to being uneasy, I'm not in the least. I've the spirit of a lion when it comes to such a chance as that. When I see how readily the sensibilities of the passing stranger can be worked in New York, I think of taking up the role of that desperate man on Third Avenue who went along looking for garbage in the gutter to eat. I think I could pick up at least twenty or thirty cents a day by that little game, and maintain my family in the affluence I've been accustomed to. "'Basil,' cried his wife, "'You don't mean to say that man was an impostor, and I've gone about ever since feeling that one such case in a million, the bare possibility of it, was enough to justify all that Lindau said about the rich and the poor.' March laughed teasingly. "'Oh, I don't say he was an impostor. Perhaps he really was hungry, but if he wasn't, what do you think of a civilization that makes the opportunity of such a fraud?' that gives us all such a bad conscience for the need which is, that we weaken to the need that isn't. Suppose that poor fellow wasn't personally founded on fact. Nevertheless, he represented the truth, he was the ideal of the suffering which would be less effective if realistically treated. That man is a great comfort to me. He probably rioted for days on that quarter I gave him, made a dinner, very likely, or a champagne supper, and if every other week wants to get rid of me i intend to work that racket you can hang around the corner with bella and tom can come up to me in tears at stated intervals and ask me if i've found anything yet to be sure we might be arrested and set up somewhere but even in that extreme case we should be provided for oh no i'm not afraid of losing my place I've merely a sort of psychological curiosity to know how men like Dreyfus and Fulkerson will work out the problem before them. End of chapter 52